Hi folks, it's Nick. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to let you know that this story is going to be entirely focused on Florida's role in World War II as a bit of an overview. We're going to be talking about Pearl Harbor as well as some marine battles that occurred in Florida's waters. War is not the easiest topic for folks to listen to, so I wanted to give you a heads up before we got further into it. Obviously, I won't be discussing anything in too graphic detail, but if this isn't the sort of thing that you feel comfortable hearing about, tune in to some previous episodes this season or come back for our episode next week. I look forward to seeing you then. If you're all set for this episode, let's get started. Near where I live, there is a lake. It's called Lake Jessup, and it's the largest lake in Seminole County at 16,000 acres. If you've listened to this show long enough, you've heard me talk about this lake before. I love it dearly. With Hurricane Ian and Nicole in the last few months, Jessup's water level has risen, its floodplain expanding, turning the shoreline into more of a wetland than it has been in recent memory. The birds seem to be loving their increased hunting ground, but the lake won't be the same until its regular water patterns return. As I often do when I cross Lake Jessup on the 417, I look to the shoreline, and I look out to the island in the middle of the lake. I discussed this on my Sanford History episode, our 100th episode, almost two years ago now, but I'd like to briefly tell you once again about the island in the middle of the lake, simply named Bird Island. Bird Island is not much land, only a spit of an island in the middle of a vast lake, but for such a small spot of land, you'd be amazed at the density of history on that spot. In an article in the Orlando Sentinel from January 9th, 2000, written by Jim Robeson, he says, quote, The island is big enough for four high school football fields if the tall grass, cattails, bamboo, and vines were mowed down and the Spanish moss-covered trees were felled. End quote. Well, those four football fields contain full generations of history on its shores. Archaeologists have found everything on this island from, quote, pottery shards, projectile points, and animal bones, end quote. Those animal fossils include, quote, an ancient tooth from a giant horse, bones of ancient whales, and a ground sloth that could have been 12 feet tall, end quote. There's also reason to believe that this was a fortress of some kind with evidence of a wooden barrier around the edge of the island. This is critical pre-colonization evidence and evidence from animals that are long, long extinct. Bird Island is casually a bastion of ancient artifacts. But some not-so-ancient history lies in its shell-mound floor. Though there are no specifics as to what they have found, this article notes that, quote, the lake has collected artifacts from Sanford's World War II era, end quote. Robeson adds, quote, several airplanes ditched into the lake, and area Navy buffs think the lake holds practice bombshells and possibly some live shells, end quote. Now, this is 20 years ago. I don't know what they've discovered since then. I promise I will get to the bottom of it, maybe even get to Bird Island someday soon. But under the water where I drive overhead, there very well may be artifacts from nearly a century ago, remnants of our presence in a war that our great-grandparents fought in a war that brought many, many soldiers to the Sunshine State. Just a few miles from Lake Jessup is the Orlando Sanford International Airport, and though it has been an airport for decades, it was originally built in 1942, part of a massive effort by the United States military to expand the presence of the military in the state of Florida. In the months after Pearl Harbor, Florida became the launching point of America's effort in World War II. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. 
This week, we're talking about World War II in Florida. From Pearl Harbor, whose anniversary will be this Wednesday, December 7th, to the German submarines that arrived to Florida's coasts. A story you may never have heard. I certainly hadn't. War was closer to Florida in those years than many of us realized. I didn't know it until I learned all about it this week, and now I'm glad to share it with you. To begin, let's talk about Pearl Harbor, which will have its 81st anniversary this upcoming Wednesday, December 7th. It is called by many the day that will live in infamy. That phrase comes from then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In a speech on December 8, 1941, the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, FDR called for a declaration of war on Japan, who had perpetuated the attack. FDR dubbed the day the day that will live in infamy. Let's listen to his speech from December 8, 1941. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. You may have heard that audio before. It's pretty famous. You may know the name of Pearl Harbor and what it is, but I'd like to talk about the event itself, what it is, and how it happened. Japan and the United States had increasing tension for years. According to History's article on the subject, I'll include a link so you can delve in more in-depth into it, according to their writers, Japan had been attempting to take part of China's territory in order to increase their trade market. History's writers call it a, quote, increasingly belligerent attitude toward China, end quote. America, on the other hand, was sanctioning and embargoing Japan, trying to keep the island nation from growing across the sea into China. There was no hope for compromise, clearly, and Japan's ally, Germany, was already waging war in Europe for the previous two years. Japan was taking this opportunity to strike out against the United States. America had been anticipating a Japanese attack, but they were looking to other islands in the greater Pacific area. Hawaii was a territory of the United States already and had been for decades. That is a whole other complex history. But the United States did not expect an attack on Hawaii from Japan. There was no additional defense at Pearl Harbor to protect against an attack. It came from nowhere early in the morning on December 7th, 1941. It was 8 a.m. The Japanese fighter planes were aiming toward eliminating the Pacific fleet of the U.S. Navy that was docked at Pearl Harbor. The first attack was on the SS Arizona, which was hit with a bomb that ripped through the top deck of the vessel and sunk the ship with the sailors inside. On top of aerial assault, underwater torpedoes were shot at ships, ripping through hulls and sending them into the raging sea. Every single battleship that was docked at Pearl Harbor was sank, and though two of them were eventually recovered, the toll was massive. Nine battleships, 20 ships total in just under two hours. The dock was destroyed, the airfields were destroyed, and the whole military installment on the water was wiped out. 2,403 U.S. personnel were killed, including soldiers and civilians. Over 100 Japanese soldiers died in the attack as well. It was a devastating combat and highly successful for the Japanese military efforts. However, they did not consider that the United States had a different asset to its navy, 
aircraft carriers loaded with airplanes had become part of America's marine strategy. They were not at Pearl Harbor, so though Japan took out many, many battleships, the aircraft carriers were away, survived the attack, and were ready to turn it around. The Pacific Fleet was still standing, which the U.S. needed, because the next day, FDR declared war, and the path toward the future was set. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. Europe, as I said, had been at war for two years now, and Japan had brought America into the fray. America had to prepare for the situation quickly in order to help their allies abroad. So here's the problem America was facing. The military needed a lot of space, a lot of land. They needed flat land in order to prepare troops. The military needed somewhere to train on the ground, in the air, and on the water, sometimes transitioning from one of those into another. The military needed places with low population that could have a lot of new residents come in. The military also needed somewhere where they could do all that while also dealing with a moderate climate, specifically avoiding brutal cold and snow. That's a lot of qualifications that they're looking for there and only so many places that they could do such a thing. Well, it just so happens that the state of Florida met all of those requirements. So very quickly after FDR announced that America was getting involved in the Second World War, the military started setting up shop in the state of Florida. We were the least populated state in the South before the war, with a few cities that were still growing and lots of open places in the middle of the state and along our waterways, especially where there was a lot of flat, usable land. By the time the war was over in 1945, Florida's low population and low development had fundamentally changed. There was a massive population boom, something I will be talking about more next year. The National Park Service says, quote, Over the course of four years, Florida grew from a small, mostly rural and agricultural state into a massive industrial and training area preparing men and material for the war, end quote. Last week, we talked about Cape Canaveral. We used a quote from Lyndon B. Johnson. Last week was kind of a sequel to this week. I guess this week is kind of a prequel to last week because we would not really have the development that led to NASA to to rockets being launched from our shores without all of the military personnel coming to Florida in the 40s in the first place. It was a chain of events that led to the launch of Artemis 1 a couple weeks ago. So it really kind of began back here when a lot of the military started setting up shop here in the state of Florida. This all was because the entire military training system was in our state. But, but more than that is that after the war was over, people came back. The military installations changed or were converted after the war. But people who spent time here training during the war came back when it was over. That was true in Sanford. We talked about that when we did our entire episode about Sanford's museum and Sanford's history. People came back to Sanford after they spent time at the naval base here in our state. That was common all over Florida. Florida became the home of many, many 
military installations, 172 to be specific, quote, ranging from relatively small specialty camps to extremely large bases, end quote. One such location was Camp Blanding outside of Stark, Florida, which kind of proves a perfect case for, for what happened when these military encampments came to Florida. So Stark is north of the Ocala National Forest. Today, it is a small city. I've driven through it many times. You just sort of zip through en route to other areas. But during the Second World War, quote, Stark became Florida's fourth largest city, growing to 180,000 acres and housing 55,000 soldiers at a time. End quote. Today, Stark's population is a little over 5,000. It still is home to Camp Blanding, which is today a joint training center for the Florida National Guard, but that's a huge difference. 55,000 people during the war, 5,000 today. A stark difference, one would say, pun intended. Beyond that, Places near large bodies of water became naval stations and airfields for people to get their planes in the air, to practice with boats, to understand the vehicles that they were bringing into war zones, including that air base in Sanford that led to the broken parks in Lake Jessup. Pensacola is still a massive military city from this era, and naval station Mayport opened in Jacksonville, the first of now several naval bases along the St. Johns River, making Jacksonville the largest military city in the state still to this day. A little further south in St. Augustine, the historic city, which was once a military stronghold centuries earlier, became one again as many parts of the town were helping the war effort. You'd think it was just Castillo de San Marcos, the Castillo did serve a role, working as a training ground for the Coast Guard, and some of the fort buildings were used as classrooms. Can you imagine training for a war in the 1940s, a war fought with bombs and planes, in a building that was built for ships and cannons centuries earlier? It must have been surreal for the people inside the Castillo. As well as the fort, Ponce de Leon Hotel, built by Henry Flagler just about five and a half decades earlier, had become barracks, and the Matanzas Bay that bordered the city was filled with boats preparing for marine conflict. What they did not know was that that marine conflict was going to happen sooner rather than later, and a lot closer to home than anybody was prepared for. Let's talk about German U-boats. U-boats are submarines that were piloted by the German Navy in their assaults against enemies in both the First World War and the Second World War. The name U-boat is actually an abbreviation of a German word that I am now going to attempt to say. I will warn you, I did not pass German 101 in college. U-boat is short for Unterseeboot, which means exactly what it sounds like under the sea boat. A submarine is literally a boat for under the ocean, so the name is a, a literal description of what it is. For shortening purposes, it just became U-boats. During World War I, the U-boat was a huge part of the German sea efforts, but the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War prevented them from building more. The German military defied this restriction, however, and had more U-boats ready to go at the beginning of the Second World War. The Allies in Europe were unprepared for the U-boat assaults, so the German marine warfare became an immediate and intense threat in the waters at the start of the war. The British referred to a crew of traveling U-boats as a wolf pack. They were dangerous on their own, but when they were together, they were terrifying. As the war went on, the U-boats found more ways to drift further out into the Atlantic Ocean, meaning they could be a serious threat to one of the most valuable assets that America brought to the war, supplies. If there was no way to get supplies to the European allies, then the allies would be starved for fuel, for food supplies, for many, many things that they needed to continue the war efforts. That was something that America provided. And if the U-boats were out in the Atlantic preventing those supply ships from making it across the Atlantic, that was very, very bad. 
Florida's position jutting out into the Atlantic made it a perfect position to launch some of those supply ships, but also provided a route for those ships to take around the state of Florida, which meant that our shores became a target for the German U-boats. The U-boats had already been raising hell along the Atlantic coast of the United States, sinking supply ships and making the coastal cities readjust to the threat coming from Germany. See, over in Europe, they had already been aware of the U-boats and what they would do along the coast is they would have blackouts so that you couldn't really see anything along the edges of, of the cities at night, especially boats drifting by or even just towns along the water. America had not adopted that, and the Germans couldn't believe it. They were able to get easier attacks off of ships along the Atlantic East Coast because there were not blackouts when they first arrived. So it became an immediate problem along the coast. The U-boats were taking advantage. The waters around Florida had become an important route for Allied ships. With oil coming from Texas to support the war effort in Europe, supply ships would make their way around the coast of Florida from the Gulf all the way out to the Atlantic and slingshot over to help the Allied forces regain supplies. But the U-boats were bullying the ships moving around Florida and it was starting to get ugly. On April of 1942, a new operation by the German U-boats began, just about five months after Pearl Harbor. Let's go to Jacksonville Beach. Jacksonville Beach is a lovely city. It is not a city that you would expect to have been a place for actual literal World War II combat, but just a few miles off of Jacksonville Beach, there was indeed a World War II conflict. It was a Friday night, and it was packed. People were enjoying the boardwalk at the beginning of a weekend. There was dancing and food and a movie theater. People out there were well aware of the increased presence of the U-boats along Florida's shores, but historians suspect that people didn't realize how intense the threat actually was. The U-boats had actually been spotted along the shores for the last few months, miles away from the shoreline, too close for comfort, but... A lot of historians think that people really were not aware of how imminent the threat was at that point. The mission of the U-boats was clearly not to attack civilians, or they would have by that point. They were just interested in attacking the supply ships, and a tanker ship was on the way on the night of April 10th, 1942. The ship was called the SS Gulf America. That's one word, Gulf America. That ship, quote, was on its way back to New York after its maiden voyage to pick up thousands of gallons of oil from Texas, end quote. That fuel was bound for Europe, which meant the U-boat off of Jacksonville Beach's shore had found a target. I don't know how we know this, but the U-boat was numbered 123. I don't know how that information got to us today, but multiple sources cite U-123 as the culprit of this attack. When the Gulf of America was making its route around Jacksonville Beach, it was April 10th, 1942, and the U-boat opened fire. It was a ship filled with fuel, so an explosion was massively destructive. Planes arrived about an hour later to drop flares to ward the U-boat off, but the damage was done. A torpedo and some gunfire totally removed the tanker's capability. It was out of commission now, in a fiery blast. According to reports from those who witnessed it, quote, Many people watched the flames fill the sky about four miles offshore. Others who didn't see the explosion flocked to the beach over the weekend to catch a glimpse of the wreckage, end quote. Historians believe that the captain of the U-boat did this on purpose. He chose a populated area, such as the boardwalk on a Friday night, where civilians could see the destruction of the ship. It was part of their plan to frighten the people on Florida's shores, to create a spectacle of fear. In the blast, 19 of the 48 people aboard the Gulf America died. The ship took a long time to fully sink, and fuel from the tanker mixed with the sand on the shore. 
Some people along Jacksonville Beach loaded onto boats and carefully made their way out to the wreckage. The loss of life may have been higher, but the Navy and civilians on watercraft did their best to save as many as they could, and some people made it out of there that might not have made it otherwise. In the resulting chaos and in the years that followed, many stories have evolved from eyewitnesses. Stories of children leaving movie theaters and the things they saw in the water, stories of soldiers fleeing the boat, the things they left behind, and a lot of historians believe that in all that chaos, stories came about that may not be totally true. Things that people believed were true, but the facts don't completely line up. That's what happens on nights like this. Things get scrambled, truth becomes harder to pin down, and the stories have about as much weight as the facts themselves. Either way, the people of Jacksonville Beach were impacted by this attack the entire weekend, and the stories persisted for generations afterwards. One note, the U-boat used in this attack was scuttled by the Germans in 1944, U-boat 123. It didn't disappear, however. The French took it for themselves and used it for 15 years. They called it the Blaison. I don't know, that's French, B-L-A-I-S-O-N, the Blaison. Am I doing a French accent? Anyway, they used it until 1959. Can you believe that? The French just took that ship. History is weird, and that's just a strange little route in it. I'd love to learn more about it, but I think I'll just let that one lie for now. The sinking of the Gulf America would not be the last blast to strike a ship along Florida's shores. It was part of a larger plan that the German Navy was using to keep America's Navy and supply ships on their toes. They called it Operation Drumbeat, and according to one Nazi captain who reported this much later in life, the plan was to continue to eliminate ships and frighten Americans along the shores. The fear was part of the plan for them. They even attacked in the Gulf of Mexico, going all along the southern coast of Florida into our western shores. Tampa became a target for the U-boats as well. Quote, the Tampa Bay area was a prime target because it was home to three airfields where planes flew missions and because ships and tankers left Tampa's port carrying aviation fuel and supplies. End quote. Tampa was critical and the Nazi U-boats completed their goals. Quote, the Nazis sunk seven ships coming to or from the Tampa Bay area. End quote. Stewart, Florida saw marine violence. Vero Beach saw marine violence. And the oil from these conflicts sunk into our waters. Ecologists believe that it had an impact for years afterwards. By the time the Operation Drumbeat Plan came to a close in April of 1943, 70 vessels had been sunk and an estimated 700 sailors had been killed. Ultimately, however, one historian notes that Operation Drumbeat for the Germans was actually a failure. Rodney Kites Powell is quoted in an article in the Tampa Bay Times saying the following, quote, There were never enough U-boats to pose a serious threat to American shipping, and difficulty in repairing and resupplying the German submarines continually hampered the German Navy's efforts. Four out of the 15 U-boats assigned to the Gulf were sunk, and unlike the merchant seamen, there were no survivors when a submarine sank. In all, 157 German crewmen lost their lives in the Gulf during World War II. End quote. As with all Nazi plans, Operation Drumbeat ended in failure. The war preparations would continue in Florida throughout the rest of the war, especially as the ending approached. The landing at Normandy, France would eventually be called D-Day, a turning point of the war that led to Allied victory and led to the liberation of Nazi-controlled Europe. It was the defeat of the Nazi party that began on D-Day. 
It began on June 6, 1944, but the mission had been in preparation for months and months leading up to it, all the way back to 1943. This was a mission that included both land and sea combat, amphibian warfare. And where could you find a better place to train for land and sea locations than Florida? Well, enter Carabelle Beach along the Panhandle, which was home to Camp Gordon Johnston, along with Dog Island out in the Gulf to the south. They had the Amphibious Training Center there, which had closed earlier, but was reopened to prepare for D-Day. The U.S. Army Infantry Division trained for the invasion of Normandy along that beach at that camp in Florida. And when the invasion of Normandy began, quote, on D-Day, the first amphibian infantry assault teams to arrive on French soil or from the 4th Infantry Division at Utah Beach, end quote. So they trained in Florida, then they made their way to Normandy. From Florida to the shores of France, Allied victory was prepared for in our state. In more ways than one, Florida was on the front lines of World War II, which places us, once again, on the front line of history. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. I don't get to talk about World War II a lot. It's something I feel a little bit intimidated by. It is a huge history, and oftentimes I feel like there is not an easy way to talk about it. But when you've got such an important day like today, the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, where so many people lost their lives, it feels important to honor them and to remember the things that happened afterwards. That that, that event was the launching point of so much history and so much history in the state of Florida. So it just felt right to dive into World War II's history with you this week. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I certainly enjoyed learning about it, and I hope that I can explore some of those side roots of this episode again in the very near future. As I mentioned, there are a lot of different places that we sort of talked about in this episode. There's Pearl Harbor, there is Lake Jessup, there is the attack of the Gulf America, and there is the training for Normandy's attack. So I've included links to those four things so you can learn more about those individual events because there's a lot more to it than just what I covered. It is fascinating. All the people involved, all the planning, all of it. It, it boggles my mind. So go check those out and read more about these stories. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I am very, very proud of this show, and I hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy making it. So if you do, please consider leaving a review and let me know what you enjoy about this show. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. I'll include a link to where that audio from FDR came from so you can listen to the speech in full. FDR's speeches are always a fascinating listen. The holidays are just around the corner, and if you're looking for a great gift for the Florida nerd in your life, I contributed to a book about Florida and Florida history and Florida culture. It's simply called Florida, with an exclamation point. It's published by A24. There's a link in the episode description for you to check it out. There is some fascinating history there and some fascinating history about areas that sprung into existence from World War II. So you can see that influence in that book and enjoy even more of Florida's unique history and culture. Go pick up a copy. It means a lot to me. And look for your pal Nick while you're giving it a read. And if you get a copy, tag me on Instagram, WFMPod. I'd love to see you with your copy. I'll post my picture of my copy. I love my copy of the book. I read it 
way too often. It's a great read. Anyway, thank you so much for that. All right, folks, next week is the big one. I've been promising it for a long time, but finally we're going to be talking about bricks. And this is an episode that is a Florida episode and also kind of a Georgia episode. Man, I, I would love to tell you a lot about it, but I kind of think you need to just listen to it for yourself. Here's what I'll say. Have you ever been walking along the streets of a historic part of your town and looked down at the ground, at the bricks, the red bricks under your feet, and noticed that there is a word on them, a name, a title, uh, something that stands out to you? Well, that happened to me over a year ago. I looked on the ground in Sanford as I was walking to my coffee shop, and I noticed that in the streets of the city of Sanford, there was a word printed on the bricks. It said, Augusta. I didn't know what that meant. I did some research and eventually it led me to the streets of Augusta, Georgia this past summer where I made some new friends and learned some history that is so incredible. I cannot wait to share it with you. Next week we begin our brick adventure and then the week after that it will be the wait five minutes holiday special. Third anniversary. Can't wait for it. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and as always, drink more water. See you next week.